Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. This is the second in a series of three Heart Podcasts that are all sponsored by Boehringer Ingelheim Lilly Alliance, but they had no influence at all over the content, selection of speakers, or organization of the podcast in any way. Uh, and so, again, we're talking about heart failure. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Patricia Campbell, who is a heart failure expert, a member of the board of the British Society of Heart Failure. Uh, who works in Northern Ireland, and we have a great discussion all about the latest ESC 2021 guidelines on heart failure. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us reach new listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dr. Campbell, for joining me today for this episode of the Heart Podcast. Maybe we can kick off by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Whereabouts do you work, and what do you do there? Yeah, thank you so much, James, for the invite to come on and speak. I'm having a major fangirl moment because I do listen to this podcast (laughs) as I'm doing my commute between my two hospitals. So, uh, yeah, I kind of feel a bit uh, privileged to be here. Uh, Yes, so I'm Patricia Campbell. I'm one of the consultant cardiologists in the Southern Trust in Northern Ireland. So we cover lots of Down Armagh and South Tyrone. Um, We have two main hospitals. One's a DGH and one is a larger uh, general hospital. And I'm the heart failure lead for the entire trust. So I do on call quite a lot, but my main interest is really in echocardiography and heart failure. And um, so I head up this service, which I took over. I moved here in about 2018 and we have a, a team of excellent nurses, but they were kind of a little bit without a rudder directing them where to go. So we've made a lot of transformative changes to care pathways for patients which are ongoing, ever improving. Oh, always evolving. Exactly. Always. Yeah. I read a really nice paper uh, published by you that I'll, I'll link in the show notes from the British Journal of Cardiology uh, earlier on this year in July 2022. And it really is a nice summary of the latest European Society of Cardiology guidelines, which came out in 2021. Um, and it concerns sort of new developments in investigations and diagnosis of, of heart failure. Maybe we can kick off by, first of all, discussing um, diagnosis of heart failure What's changed in these guidelines? What's the role of NT Pro BNP? And maybe perhaps you could outline the kind of three steps that the ESC now recommend for diagnosing heart failure. Yeah. So I suppose the role of BNP in the diagnosis of heart failure isn't new. I think the main thing that came out from the guidelines is that we're using BNP to diagnose heart failure, but that we have to act on it early. So having a heart failure as a suspicion for a diagnosis in our mind is the major um driver here so if you think somebody has symptoms that may be related to heart failure check a bnp now bnp isn't a perfect test which we can kind of touch on later and it isn't one of the more inexpensive tests so we do have to kind of use it with some caution in our restricted cost saving era that we're in at the moment however and um, it is a, a diagnostic test that really can help figure out if somebody's symptoms are related to heart failure because as you know heart failure symptoms are very non specific um, and BMP can really start to highlight to you whether it may be um, heart failure or not. So if you've got somebody with risk factors for heart failure, so be that hypertension, previous MI, um, atrial fibrillation, um, any of the real traditional cardiovascular risk factors, and they have new symptoms such as shortness of breath, peripheral edema, um, fatigue, inability to exercise, then you need to think about BNP. So that really the diagnostic algorithm really for the ESC is if you've got risk factors, you've got symptoms and or signs, 
and maybe an abnormal ECG, then you need to think about BNP. Now, the difference between the ESC guidelines for BNP and what we use here in the UK, we stick to the NICE guidelines. Now, our NICE cutoffs are a BNP of less than 400 is just saying that a heart failure diagnosis is not confirmed. Whereas we use the cutoffs then to streamline our triaging thereafter. So a BNP between 400 and 2000, we would say would need a heart failure specialist assessment and an echocardiogram within six weeks. And a BNP, this is all NT-pro BNP, by the way, of greater than 2000, we would need a heart failure specialist assessment and echocardiogram within two weeks. Now, how that differs from the ESC is that the ESC NT-pro BNP guidelines recommend a cutoff of 125. Now, right. the reason for this difference is it's the very negative predictive value of a, a level of NT-proBNP less than 125. So we can say for really high certainty that if your BNP is less than 125, you do not have heart failure. We use the different cutoffs in NICE because remember, our NICE guidelines will also include cost effectiveness. What I would say is that I think a BNP cutoff of 400 is a very good marker. So if it's more than 400, you've every reason to think this might be heart failure and to further investigate. But what I would say is those with a value of an NT pro BNP between 125 and 400, it can still be heart failure. Um, so don't totally discount it. And I would bring this up as case in point, for example, for young people, particularly who present with symptoms of exercise intolerance, perhaps post a viral illness. Remember, we can get viral myocarditis that can sometimes not present at the time, but can cause LV systolic dysfunction that really people cope with quite well when they're young because they have really good peripheral musculature and their peripheral musculature is much better able to kind of extract oxygen from it. So they compensate for quite a while. But if you have a 40 year old who previously was out, you know, training for a marathon, who had limitless exercise tolerance, who then comes to you saying, look, I can barely get through the day at work. They might not have orthopnea, they might not have peripheral edema, but if their BMP is 350, that's not normal for a 40 year old who is previously healthy. So, so yes, our, our NICE cutoffs are different than the ESC cutoffs. And just to say that because the ESC cutoff has a very high negative predictive value, but do think of it in mind for some people who still have symptoms in that gray zone in between. Brilliant. And that's a really fantastic summary of the differences. And I, I certainly learned something reading your paper about this. Um, could we talk about the new concepts in heart failure classification? maybe not so new these days, but the ones that are outlined in the guidelines, um, for example, heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction. What's your views on those? And what do the ESC tell us uh, in the guidelines? Yeah, my views are that, you know, um, I suppose when it first came out, so we're probably talking about five or six years ago, we were introduced to this concept of mid-range ejection fraction, which we don't use anymore. But but what it was is that we know that HEF-REF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is when your ejection fraction is less than 40%. Yeah. So that is very clear. The guidelines for medical therapy for that are very clear. But we kind of then had varying ways of looking at patients with heart failure when their ejection fraction was above that. And the trials all looked at different measurements. They looked at EFs above 40%, above 45%, above 50%. We didn't really know what we were doing. So about five or six years ago, the ESC decided to say, well, look, what about this mid-range ejection fraction? Who are these people and how do they behave? You know, how does their disease process function? 
And it seemed that these people seemed with heart failure and ejection fractions between the 40 and 50 percent seemed to behave a little bit more like the HEF-REFs in terms of heart failure hospitalizations and perhaps decline in systolic function over time if left untreated. So the new concept out in the guidelines in 2021 is that we have replaced this term mid-range ejection fraction to heart failure mildly reduced ejection fraction. So we still call it HEF-MREF, right? <laughs> Not easy to say, but we say it all the time. Um, now, that might seem like it's kind of, well, why bother changing it? Well, I think it is important because mid-range, well, we don't really know what that really meant. It didn't really signify anything clinical. Whereas if we say mildly reduced ejection fraction, it brings home that the systolic function is not normal in these people. And, and it brings home the fact that they will, will respond to much of the same therapies that patients with HEF-REF will respond to. Now, the level of evidence for the response is maybe not quite so high as for those with HEF-REF or EF less than 40%, but they definitely seem to derive benefit from the same four pillars of care. So that's ACE, ARNI, beta blocker, MRAs, and your SGLT2s as the HEF-REF patients will. So I think the naming of it might seem just kind of arbitrary, but actually I do think it, it brings home to you that their systolic function is not normal and probably deserve the attention uh, similar to those patients with HEF-REF to prevent further decline in systolic function. So I think that's the first thing. And then the, just then to clarify, the next thing is really that they define that patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction or HEF-PEF is those with an ejection fraction of 50% and above. And I think we now have very significant evidence to state that those patients behave quite differently from the patients with HEF-REF in that they're not likely to get systolic dysfunction. However, we know that they make up about half of all the population with heart failure and that their hospitalization rates are as much as those patients with HEF-REF and HEF-MREF. And even though in the trials, the mortality for patients with HEF-PEF doesn't seem to be as much as for those with reduced systolic function, the real world data would suggest to us that patients with HEF-PEF's mortality isn't as low as we thought it was from the trial data but that their overall mortality level is equal, but it's maybe not so much related to heart failure death and cardiovascular death. They have all cause mortality that's similar because these patients are very multimorbid and have lots of disease conditions contributing to their heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So that's kind of the difference in the nomenclature of the heart failure. But I do think it translates into how we treat these people differently, depending on their ejection fraction. Now, there is just really one class of medicine at the moment that hasn't made it into the ESE 2021 guidelines, but is being looked at in a current review of the heart failure guidelines. So that's unusual to have a review of the guidelines one year after the guidelines have been introduced. But that's because we now have two trials showing the use of SGLT2s for heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. So you will know that SGLT2s have very strong data for HEF-REF and EF of less than 40%. But now both the Emperor Preserved and the Deliver trials, that's using empagliflozin and dapagliflozin in patients whose ejection fractions are 40% and above. So that's that MREF zone and the PEF zone show a very significant benefit, mostly in terms of reducing heart failure hospitalization. So they're the only medicine that seems to have efficacy across the entire spectrum of ejection fraction. And um, so I do think having the nomenclature for the different 
types of heart failure, REF, MREF and PEF matter because it does dictate how we treat these people. And let's just jump forward a little bit. One question in our outline here and talk about HEF-PEF for a second um, in terms of diagnosing it. Um, I think some people get confused about exactly how we go about making a firm diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And there are now sort of three steps, again, outlined by the in the ESC 2021 guidelines. Maybe you could talk about how you go about confirming a diagnosis of HEF-PEF and, and if there's any role ever for invasive hemodynamic studies in that patient group. Yeah, so that's a great question. And you know what? It's still confusing, even for heart failure <laughs> cardiologists. So, so I think it's really pertinent to bring it up. And it, it makes it sound like I outlined a really easy way to diagnose HEF-PEF <laughs> by, by reiterating this three-step. But it's still a bit complicated. So especially for HEF-PEF, it's easy for HEF-REF and HEF-MREF. You know, you've got an echo that shows non-normal systolic function, yeah. a BMP and symptoms. I mean, that's easy. But for HEF-PEF, it's still quite difficult. So you're looking for symptoms and signs of heart failure. We're looking for an ejection fraction of greater than 50%. But remember, I can have an ejection fraction of greater than 50% and not have heart failure. So I need some other, this is the third step, objective evidence of structural or functional change of the heart or raised filling pressures on the heart. Now, not every center has access to invasive hemodynamic monitoring. I don't. Um, and not, and it's not always appropriate to do it in patients. I mean, invasive monitoring does come with small but significant risk. So um, are there ways to look on echocardiogram in terms of who has HEF-PEF? So in that um, article that you're going to link to, I've, I've a table there that looks at the echo parameters and the BNP parameters for a diagnosis of HEF-PEF. But essentially, the HEF, you know, and, and the US have a HEF-2-PEF guideline and the HFA, the Heart Failure Association of the ESE, have a HEF-PEF diagnostic algorithm, but they're quite complicated. And, you know, they do, the, the last steps of them often are invasive hemodynamic monitoring. So what we kind of do in practice and what is now recommended from the new ESE guidelines is to look at the markers on echocardiogram and the more of them they have, the more likely you're going to have a diagnosis of HEF-PEF. So, and these markers and echo are based on kind of pivot points in echo where we know that cardiovascular mortality increases once you're above this level. So the larger your left atrial size. So this guideline states that your left atrial volume index, if you're in sinus rhythm, has to be greater than 34 mils per meter squared. If you're an AFib, as you know, you get left atrial dilatation anyway. So you want to have at least a left atrial volume index of greater than 40 mils per meter squared. So, and left atrial volume, we know that once your left atrial volume index is above 32 mils per meter squared, your, your pivot point of mortality swings forward, you're higher risk. The other things that we look for on echo are relative wall thickness. So the relative wall thickness is the interventricular septal wall thickness in diastole and the posterior wall thickness in diastole divided by the left ventricular diastolic diameter. So that's kind of, you know, how thick is the wall of the heart compared to the cavity of the heart? And if you've got, so the normal wall thickness um, is between 0.32 and 0.42. So if your relative wall thickness is greater than 0.42, then that is increased wall thickness. Um, we also are able to measure the left ventricular mass index and echo. And for a female, if your left ventricular mass index is greater than 95 grams per meter squared, 
And for a man greater than 115 grams per meter squared, that's a diagnosis of left ventricular hypertrophy and, you know, helps support a HFPEF diagnosis. Now, the other thing that we see that we measure, as you know, are diastolic parameters. So having a mitral E of greater than nine centimeters per second and a septal E prime velocity of less than nine centimeters per second is indicative of potentially diastolic dysfunction. But the easier thing to look at, which we get all of our, our sonographers now to measure, is an E to E prime ratio. So that's the ratio of that mitral E to the septal E prime. If that's greater than nine, that's an indication that you have diastolic dysfunction. Now, the higher your E to E prime, the more likely you are to have higher LV filling pressures and diastolic dysfunction. We know that greater than 15 does correlate quite well with actual invasive measures of filling pressures. Um, but the cutoff of greater than 13 um, has a higher specificity, so greater than 85% for diastolic dysfunction. So you can see that the more of those I'm adding, you know, if I've got two or three of those, then it's very likely that this is a HEFPEF diagnosis. The other thing to say is that patients with HEFPEF frequently have a degree of pulmonary hypertension. Now, this isn't pulmonary hypertension related to underlying lung disease or anything. It is related to chronically elevated left atrial filling pressures. So on echocardiogram, if you see a PA systolic estimated pressure of greater than 35, that corroborates to a TR velocity of greater than 2.8 meters per second, then again, that's indicative that there's a degree of pulmonary hypertension and likely to add to the HEFPEF diagnosis. So the three steps sound simple, but it's not that simple. And I'm going to add BNP into this to kind of <laughs> show how it's simple and not simple at the same time. But the three step really is symptoms and signs of heart failure, ejection fraction greater than 50%, and then at least one of those echocardiographic parameters that I've just gone through. Now, if I'm talking about BNP, the ESC guidelines would say a BMP of greater than 125 for sinus rhythm, but greater than 365 for atrial fibrillation. Now, that's true. And if they're high, that's great. And that does help corroborate the diagnosis. But we know in real life that up to 20% of patients with HEFPEF have a normal BMP, which it makes it quite difficult <laughs> then to diagnose those patients. Now, the reason for that is kind of a few. So one thing is, is that HEFPEF patients don't tend to have symptoms at rest. They tend to have exertional related symptoms in that they're not able to increase their cardiac output commensurate to the degree that they need to when they're exercising and that you only get the acute wall stress issues when people are exercising. So perhaps that's the reason for the low BNP, but that's not really that physiological because there's increased wall stress all the time in these patients. So they should have a baseline elevation in BNP. It's much more likely that the normal BNP can be related to issues with actually the making of BNP or the use of BNP. So patients with HEFPEF often are comorbid with very significant obesity or insulin resistance. Um, and for that reason, there may be an issue with BNP synthesis or BNP downgrades or BNP regulation. So for various multiple mechanisms of pathophysiology that I don't particularly understand, but the patients with HEFPEF, that particular population may have a normal BNP. So yes, an elevated BNP is very helpful, but I can think now I've only had one patient in the last four years with HEFPEF and a truly normal BNP. 
And how did I prove it? Well, I had to send that person for invasive testing. So the gold standard for the diagnosis of HEPPET is invasive hemodynamic testing. So if you do an invasively measured wedge pressure, so that's your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which as you know, reflects your left atrial pressure, if it's greater than 15 at rest, or if we do exercise testing, it's greater than 25 millimeters of mercury with exercise. Or if I'm, say, for example, doing a, a diagnostic cath and I'm able to get a left ventricular end diastolic pressure, if it's greater than 16, say, on the cath lab table, then that's the diagnosis of HEFPEF when your LVEDP is greater than 16 at rest. But again, like I say, the gold standard isn't required by the ESC because it recognizes that many centers do not have access to invasive hemodynamic monitoring very easily. So that's why they've made this simple three-step symptoms and signs, an EF of greater than 50% with one or more of these echo and BMP factors to corroborate your feelings. Fantastic. Does that make sense? I hope I simplified it enough. Yeah, no, it really does make sense. It's helped me uh, get things straight in my own mind and hopefully for some of the listeners as well who aren't um, as deeply involved in heart failure as you clearly are. Um, just a couple more questions before we finish up. What about acute heart failure? Um, that's uh, something that we, we haven't talked about so far. We've been concentrating on, on chronic heart failure. And again, the ESC has sort of divided this out into four different types. There's no need to go through all four unless you feel really strongly about it, but maybe an overview for the listeners of, of what the reason is for dividing these presentations into four different types. Are different therapies required? Yeah. Uh, is the long-term outlook different? Yeah, so I think the reason for separating them out is, is that they're kind of based on symptoms and signs of congestion and perfusion. Mm -hmm. And they're divided into four because they're four different classifications because they need four different types of therapy. So I suppose just briefly, the four different types are acute decompensated heart failure. Now, this is the vast majority of heart failure that we see, which is essentially patients with chronic heart failure who have gradual elevation in their filling pressures and volume overload, and they present with systemic congestion. Now, some of those people, thankfully, not most of those people can present with hypoperfusion, so uh, reduced uh, cardiac output and may require inotropes. But the vast majority of those patients you know, you hear about us heart failure consultants describing the four quadrants of volume and pressure loading versus perfusion, hypo or normal perfusion. So the vast majority of these people are warm and wet, meaning their perfusion is sustained, but they are significantly congested. And those people need decongestant therapy and vasodilator therapy. So that's your typical patient who comes in increasing shortness of breath over the last couple of weeks, now very significant peripheral edema, et cetera, et cetera. And they're the ones that we give intravenous diuretics to in the hospital and optimize their guideline-based medical therapy. Now, thankfully, the other ones are less common, but the one that we more frequently see in hospital is the acute pulmonary edema. So this is when you get very quick lung congestion and you get dyspnea with orthopnea and respiratory failure, meaning you get hypoxemia and often hypercapnia and um, when the work of breathing is very high for these patients. Now patients in addition to intravenous diuretics will often need some respiratory support in the form of non-invasive ventilatory support. Um, so again that's a very common one that we see. Um, they do mention isolated right heart failure and I suppose in the, the world of cardiology it's something that we do come across um, most commonly in our primary world in cardiology we'll see it post an inferior ST elevation MI 
But the way I see it as a heart failure doc frequently is for patients with very end stage COPD or bronchiectasis or something that have very significant right heart failure. And um, those patients are very difficult to treat and their options are really quite limited. And I think referral for those to centers that specialize in pulmonary hypertension, if you think it's a, a pure respiratory related issue um, versus, you know, the, the hemodynamic support that acute inferior ST elevation and RV dysfunction patients need. And um, they're, they're two very different things. And thankfully, it's increasingly rare now that we have good primary PCI for um, inferior ST elevations. And cardiogenic shock is the last one that we speak about. And again, this is really just to bring to awareness of people that, you know, some people can present warm and wet, but some people can present cold and wet or sometimes cold and dry so that patients with heart failure can just have hypoperfusion. And it's worth pointing out because you do not want to miss it. And so you do want to be thinking of it for patients with heart failure when they have narrow pulse pressures, not necessarily profoundly low blood pressures. So something like a pulse pressure of like 94 over 86 would make me very worried that there's very poor perfusion in that heart failure patient. And patients who have worsening renal function despite your good medical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So cardiogenic shock can come on very acutely, but it can kind of creep in patients with acute decompensated heart failure. So just important to always keep it in your mind. And as you know, those patients are going to need inotropic support and consideration um, for advanced therapies if they are candidates. So I suppose it's worth pointing out that there are different types of acute heart failure because the treatments of them are really quite different. Lovely. And let, let's finish off, Dr. Campbell, by talking about amyloidosis and particularly cardiac amyloidosis. And what's new in the diagnosis of these patients in the guidelines? Right. So I think this is really important. And I think now the guidelines are touching on it. And um, we as a community are nowhere near diagnosing as much amyloid as we probably could be. So I think it, it's bringing it to the fore to bring it to the fore in people's minds. So it is a very underdiagnosed cause of heart failure and mostly in HEF-PEF. Now, most amyloid, as you know, is caused by AL amyloid, which is the hematological issue, or transthyretin amyloid, which is either the wild type or a hereditary type, the hereditary type making up about 10% of the ATTR. But when we think about HEFPEF, there are estimates that somewhere between about 5 and 16% of patients with HEFPEF, it's actually related to their amyloid or patients that are um, in for aortic stenosis requiring aortic valve replacement actually have amyloid. And like, that's fairly mind boggling. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I couldn't believe it when I read the uh, paper, the, the numbers are much higher than I had uh, anticipated or realized. Yeah. And I think James, you're just reflecting what we all see. Like there's no way that I'm diagnosing amyloid in 15% of my HEFPEF patients. So I think it's good to bring to mind. And what they say is, you know, for somebody who's over 65 with heart failure, and a left ventricular wall thickness that's greater than 12 millimeters of mercury at echocardiography, that's unexplained. So if you've got somebody with really poorly controlled blood pressure for the last 30 years and a degree of LVH, well, you know, it's probably hypertensive heart disease. But if you've got somebody with unexplained LVH and they're over 65 and they have heart failure, it's something to think about. And so then when you think, oh, gosh, I wonder, could it be amyloid? Then you look out for some of the red flag findings. So the things that I think about when I'm thinking about red flag, you know, indicators that this might be um, amyloid, patients with significant renal dysfunction and proteinuria, and um, patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome, I used to think is something that was never going to be related to my life. Now I find I'm asking about it every day in clinic <laughs> and patients with spinal stenosis. 
you know, all those things, again, you know, again, I'd never thought I'd think about, but they are related to systemic protein deposition. So when you have those in common with somebody with unexplained LVH, it's worth thinking about. So the diagnostic test for amyloid, you know, for the gold standard, again, is endomyocardial biopsy. But again, I don't have that in my center to hand. So what else can we do? Well, you know that DPD scanning, that's technetian label spec scanning, can highlight amyloid deposition. Um, again, we don't have that at all in Northern Ireland at the moment. So I have to, when I suspect TTR in our patients, I have to refer them over to the National Amyloid Centre, who provide me a wonderful service, might I say. But it is obviously a huge then leap to go, oh, there's a bit of LVH on this patient. I don't have a biopsy. I don't have a DPD. I'm going to send them to the NAC. But what you can do then is you can look at cardiac MRI. It does have a fairly good sensitivity and specificity of about 85 and 95 percent for looking at cardiac amyloid. And I do have access for cardiac MRI. So for me, that's kind of the process I take. If I have somebody with LVH, heart failure over 65, the LVH is unexplained. I'll make sure it's nothing that, that's related to AL amyloid because it's very simple to do serum protein electrophoresis and to check for light chains. If those are abnormal, I ask hematology to do a bone marrow biopsy to see if it's AL amyloid. If it doesn't look like AL amyloid, then I'll think about ATTR and I'll get a cardiac MRI. Fantastic. And what a lovely summary. And as you say, uh, not everybody has access to all these amazing tests, imaging tests, biopsies. So um, yeah, that seems like a really pragmatic approach. Um, anything else you'd like to share, Patricia, before we finish up? Is there any resources you recommend or societies that people should consider joining if they're interested in heart failure? Maybe they're starting out in their career as, as cardiologists. Yeah, so I am from Northern Ireland, but I only moved back to Northern Ireland after training abroad for many, many years in 2018 and joined the British Society of Heart Failure. And I went to the first meeting that year and I have to say I was blown away by not only the scientific content of it, but the practical lectures, discussions, evidence of best practice, evidence of excellence in heart failure care, and that, you know, with a really open community that are really willing to share resources and and strategic planning, sharing, it really is a phenomenal group of people. So I've joined them and since managed to get on the boards, very luckily. I can't stress how good the meeting is. They also have a training meeting uh, in May, which is a two-day training event which is a wonderful introduction to heart failure as well. And they have an excellent nurse forum. They have an excellent representation from pharmacists, patients with heart failure. So for me, the British Society of Heart Failure really internationally speaks to me as excellence in heart failure care. Um, we have our meeting usually the first Thursday and Friday of December each year. So I'd please recommend anybody to go along. It truly is a wonderful meeting. Perfect. And once again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I've uh, learned a great amount and hopefully our audience have too. Great pleasure.